0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with whether or not America will soon have gangster government like the Russians have under Putin, since our criminal-in-chief, Donald Trump, now controls the Republican Party and is their front-runner for 2024 and could be elected to a second term by GOP voter suppression alone. Joining us is Peter Strock the former FBI Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau. He served as one of the original case agents for the Russian couple who inspired the TV series The Americans, and he has investigated a range of other high-profile cases, from WikiLeaks to the 9-11 hijacking to Hillary Clinton's private email server. He was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and work with Robert Mueller as a leader of the FBI's efforts in creating the special counsel's office. The author of Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, just out in a new paperback edition, will discuss what can be done to stop Trump, who has already issued a call for civil war, having urged his followers to engage in the biggest demonstrations ever if he is indicted. Then we'll speak with Amanda Starbuck, the Research Director at Food and Water Watch, where she has a new analysis on EVA Congressional Hearing, data shows egregious profiteering in food energy sectors. We'll discuss the drivers of inflation and what can be done to stop corporate price gouging during the pandemic when energy costs have increased by 20.3% and the cost to feed a family of four on a thrifty budget has increased by 33.5%. Then finally, with Senator Manchin pronouncing Biden's Build Back Better bill dead, we will examine the extent to which the other saboteur of the Democratic Party's agenda, Senator Sinema, is being rewarded by Republican donors for her death blow to voting rights, clean energy, childcare, and other measures that would help America's women. This after Cinema made sure America's men got heavy construction jobs through her so called bipartisan infrastructure bill. Joining us is Sheila Crumholz, the executive director of Open Secrets, a nonpartisan organization that tracks money, politics, and influence in Washington. And we will discuss the fundraising hall Cinema is being lavished with from oil company executives as she capitalizes on her success, having delivered on taxes and climate change. For her big donors. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank our growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality based community in Post Truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. Joining us now is Peter Strzok, who's a former FBI Deputy Assistant Director for Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau. He served as one of the original case agents for the Russian couple who inspired the TV series The Americans, and he has investigated a range of other high-profile cases from WikiLeaks to the 9-11 hijackings to Hillary Clinton's private email server and he was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and work with Robert Mueller as the head of the FBI's effort in creating the Special Counsel's Office. He's also a veteran of the United States Army's 101st Airborne Division and is a recipient of the FBI's highest investigative honor, the Director's Award for Excellence, and is the author of Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, just out in a new paperback edition. Welcome to Background Briefing,
1: Peter Strzok. Great, thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And let me begin with Ukraine, which, of course, is very much in the news. And you dealt with, you investigated Paul Manafort, who was Trump's first campaign manager, but he was also previously worked for Yanukovych, the gangster that Putin installed, who the people drove out. And at the heart of what's happening now in this confrontation between Russia and Ukraine, is the choice between gangster government, which is what Putin offers, and the rule of law and democracy, which is what the Ukrainian people and their government are trying to establish. And Putin simply cannot allow the experiment in democracies to succeed in in uh, Ukraine because then the Russian people will wake up that their neighbors next door who have a fraction of the resources that... Russia has, have a better life with freedom, uh, democracy, and the rule of law. And what does Putin offer? Nothing but gangster government and a kleptocracy where he and the oligarchs are stealing the country blind and distracting the people with hypernationalism and military adventures. So could this happen here? Bring this up, Peter, because we have in Donald Trump, who just made the most incendiary and dangerous speech, that I've ever heard an American politician make just on Saturday, where he just went after the rule of law and in plain sight basically conducted obstruction of justice. He controls the Republican Party. He's a front-runner in 2024. He'd been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his professional life. He's always at war with the the law because that's how he was tutored by Roy Cohn. Does this concern you? Because it sure as hell concerns me.
1: Yeah, it concerns me very much. I mean, there's a lot of, you make a lot of excellent points in, in, your, uh, in your comments. I think it is possible here. I think what is most concerning is certainly not only the, there are two components of it, I think. One is the embrace, and we saw it during Trump's presidency, of all these authoritarians around the world. And I don't know that there was a conscious decision on his part, so much as there were, you know, an admiration of the Kim Jong-uns and the Duterte's and the Erdogan's and you know you find an authoritarian figure um and and uh you know orban and hungary and and trump seems to admire them and i don't think that was based on any sort of deep ideological affinity i think that was simply based on the fact that he liked the idea of absolute power and the concern so you know as a counterintelligence person i look at the way that those nations and others can influence trump wittingly or unwittingly and cause him to do things that are more in their interest than in the united states national interest but separate and distinct from that sort of professional perspective you know i share your deep concern about what's going on in the united states you know certainly within increasingly the mainstream of the republican party and it is all of the things that you mentioned it is a move away from a sort of democratic rule of law it is moving away from uh Encouraging access to the ballot, it is moving towards putting people in uh, elected spots where they have influence over the state electoral processes, and it is a not only Trump offering the sort of corrupt vision of what future governance might look like, but the sadly the embrace by a huge number of folks within the Republican Party that up until now would have I think by both themselves and by outside observers, seen them as, you know, kind of very mainstream mainstream adherents to one of the two major parties in the United States.
0: Well, on Saturday at this rally in Texas, he told his followers that if he's indicted, he's called upon them to go out and conduct the biggest demonstrations in American history in his name. And he basically said, in going after me, they're really going after you. So he's made it sort of personal and you've got seven out of 10, apparently, Republicans believing that he's uh, that Trump is the legitimate leader in this country and that Biden's illegitimate. So it came close to a kind of call for civil war. And without getting into hyperbole, what is the portent of that in this upcoming election year? Would the FBI be able to contain a situation where you've got a former president basically calling out his millions of his followers you know particularly if one of these or more of these cases against him you know has him actually indicted
1: yeah i think it's going to take more than the fbi would be able to muster i mean if we have massive riots in the scale of you know i think back to the late 60s and early 70s where the national guard was called upon to help keep the peace i think you know the prospect of protests of that largest scale would be well beyond the capability of you know folks like not just the FBI, but add in other law enforcement agencies in the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. This would truly be a, a much larger effort than that. And he's doing two things. I mean, one, you're absolutely right. He's inciting violence in his name, if he are, if he were to be prosecuted and at the same time, he's, you know, he's dangling pardons. I mean, he mentioned specifically about the January 6th insurrectionist, but the implication was, you know, if you do these things, in addition to those of you who have done things for me that are violent in the past, I won't pardon you. So it is, there. there there's obstruction going on. There's in, in sort of an incitement, not, not a legal incitement, because it's very, the bar in the U.S. for charging incitement given the way the first amendment works and case law has been interpreted that's a very very high standard but he is doing things that at the end of the day are fundamentally not just undemocratic but you know authoritarian in nature and he's doing it right in the open you you make an excellent point though about he uses this this sort of rhetorical device which is complete nonsense right you know they i am they are coming after you and that manifests itself in coming after me because I'm what's standing in the way of them coming after you, which of course is nonsense. I mean, Trump doesn't care about the the bulk of the people he's speaking to. If they showed up at the gates of Mar-a-Lago to try and get in to see him, he would never let them in. He would not accept them as members. They couldn't afford to be members. So this there's there is kind of this this rhetorical device that he's using to tap into, I think, if we're to talk about how we fix this, how we solve this, how we make it right, It is to try and identify and come to terms with what this thing is that Trump is tapping within this huge sector of the American population. Because at the end of the day, I mean, Trump's abusing the process, but he is he is very much the symptom of something, I think, which runs much deeper. Now, there are a lot of complex things, I think, that go into it. And there are many more learned people than I am observing this process. But I think there are elements of people who feel that they are losing power in society that they might have felt before. I think there is a, a, a racist and racial dynamic to it. I think there is a sense of entitlement and aggrievement that comes along with really having lived through an extraordinarily prosperous part of our, our nation's history. I mean, none of us have had to face some extant threat like World War Two or World War One or the Great Depression, where there is a need to come together in the in the work to obtain and preserve something greater. We've gone through generations now of very selfish, self-serving, I can get a lot of what I want without necessarily needing to contribute that much. And I think that, you know, again, the the people, there's some really interesting demographic work done about the people who stormed the Capitol who have been charged. And Bart Gelman writes about this research in a, a great piece he did in The Atlantic. They're not Lower class folks. They are not uneducated folks. They are not young folks by and large. They are decently educated, white, middle to upper middle class men, who many of whom are small business owners or or work successfully. So it's not, you know, these are not some, you know, down and out 18 year old from a, a poor rural part of the country who had, you know, ran into a drug problem. These are folks who don't, who perceive they have a lot of grievance, but really don't have a lot of grievance in the big scheme of things. But figuring that out, that's that's the dialogue in the, the demographic that we need to be finding and engaging, because that's what's going to lead us to ruin.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Peter Strock, who's a former FBI deputy assistant director for counterintelligence and 22 year veteran of the Bureau He was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and worked with Robert Mueller as the leader of the FBI's effort in creating the special counsel's office. And he's the author of Compromise, Counterintelligence, and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, just out in a new paperback edition. So let's focus a little bit, uh, particularly on, you know, obviously you cover this in your book extensively, Peter Strzok Compromise, Counterintelligence, and the Threat. Of Donald J. Trump, you're working with Robert Mueller. And of course, it's all there in the Mueller report. It's also all there in the bipartisan Senate report that Trump's obstructed justice. And he should already be in an orange jumpsuit based upon what's already on the record. But people like uh, William Barr and Sessions and the DOJ under Trump have skillfully, you know, sort of sidetracked it. And uh, this continues on with John Durham who has recently gone a long way to bolstering the myth of the Russia hoax. What's going on at the DOJ? Do you think there's any way that Merrick Garland can bring us back to where we should have been from the very beginning, looking at what the work that Mueller did and what you did and others did? Because it's all there, but somehow the waters have been so muddied, and now they're even being muddied further by
1: John Durham. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean... A.G. Garland has done exactly what I anticipated he would do. I mean, he was an extraordinary jurist, and he brings a reverence to the institutions of justice and the Constitution in a way that a judge and prosecutor before that would. And I understand and I appreciate a sort of institutionalist view of the way the system of justice has evolved in our nation slowly over generations, and that it has very important protections that we have decided from our founding and perfected over time that we want. And those institutions were utterly torn down, destroyed by Sessions, especially by Barr. I mean, Barr Barr was so, the damage he was able to do because of his intelligence, I, I, I don't think can be understated. But my concern is that in Garland's attempt to return us to the status quo, that that isn't enough, that Trump was a sort of sui generis threat of a president that demands more than just a return to normal. And the way that manifests itself, I think you're seeing now, I, I do think DOJ and the FBI and the prosecutors you know, DOJ working with the FBI investigators are very much looking into the activities around January 6th, are looking at the conspirators. At the higher level, folks who funded it, who coordinated it, who planned it, but I'm really worried that all of the things you know, you pointed out the Mueller report. You know, volume two is all about obstruction. All these various events, which you know, some are stronger than others, but many of them are really strong. And Director Mueller, Mueller, in his many words, said, "Well, kind of existing DOJ theory coming out of OLC and others say we can't charge a sitting president on these, but once he's no longer a sitting president, there are crimes here." I don't know that there is any substantive activity going on at DOJ looking at Trump for his actions during the administration other than January 6th and other perhaps, you know, Rudy Giuliani is under investigation in New York. Tom Barrack is under investigation in New York. There are things which might lead to Trump, but there is not, I think, a deep dive into the crimes of the past administration because one, DOJ has only so many resources to go around and those people are hugely occupied by this massive there's been no case this the scale of january 6th i mean we're over 740 ish defendant defendants charged people right now more to come there has never been an investigation this size in the united states history and so the amount of prosecutors and agents and analysts and accountants and all the people it takes to look at that is massive and then you add on top of that you know doj Certainly the FBI is not purely a backwards looking organization. They're worried about what the threats are now. They're trying to figure out what the domestic terrorism threat is now. They're worried about, you know, Director Ray was talking today about the threat from China and in the, in the intelligence arena. So all these current threats and threats in the future are also things that you have to resource. And so the ability to go in and say, OK, well, we're going to look at all these other potential crimes, coupled with the fact that, like it or not, there is a finite amount of political capital that Merrick Garland and Joe Biden have. And if they decide to go after every possible thing that Trump did, it is going to become a much different political landscape for them. Whether they ever actually say that out loud, I don't know. But it, it does. I am concerned that Trump is going to get away with stuff. And the worry when he was doing it, people said, oh, well, you know, he, you know, Mitch McConnell, right, during the second during the second impeachment said, well, you know, if there are crimes, you know, whether or not we impeach today, if there are crimes, he should be held accountable. And there there are ways we do that. Well, we're not doing it. Uh, you know, there it may be occurring in a limited fashion just re- related to January 6th. But the question is, if you're not going to go back and look at all this other potential illegality and allegations, it it would, you know, it, it's unfortunate. And I don't know what that says about do we essentially, you know, going forward, you know, any president, we give a lot of essentially a free pass for a lot of borderline illegal activity because the reality is it'll never be investigated.
0: Well, I think it's also a problem with journalism, isn't it? Nobody wants to touch old news, and it seems like you could make a RICO case here because of the long pattern, and there doesn't seem to be any effort to do it. And as I say, it's all on the record, including the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report, and I just don't understand why none of these get traction, and the Russia hoax gets traction, and... And, you know, all of this stuff about the Steele dossier, which is turns out to be a kind of a nuisance, is getting all the headlines.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's a couple of things going on there. I think there is a desire still with the media to present both sides out of a traditional sense of this is the way we do it. We just report one side says this, the other side says that. And they still have not yet had an honest reckoning of the disservice that did in the context of somebody like Trump who utterly abused. Trump takes... Trump's mark is to take advantage of the weaknesses in the system. He takes advantage of the protections of the presidency. He takes advantage of the traditional desire of the press to present both sides. He takes advantage of the criminal justice system, knowing that if he just slows it down and makes it costly, that things aren't going to happen. So he looks he looks for the gray areas. He looks for the flaws in the system. And that's where he lives with all his behavior and pushes it. So, you know, I'm like. Most many folks, I'm frustrated with the media. You know, the New York Times in particular did a spectacular overview of like the financial empire and all the games being played with the valuation of real estate holdings. And they also during that took a look at the massive amount of debt that Trump had coming due in, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And this was, I, I don't, I forget exactly when it happened. It was 2020, maybe 2019. But the point was at some point in the future, in three, four years, this debt would be coming due, and particularly if you had a questionable, if you could not secure it with real estate holdings or if those were overvalued, who is going to be co signing on this debt, allowing Trump to re sign or renegotiate this debt? And if folks like Deutsche Bank were getting scared about, you know, this isn't a sound investment, do foreign entities step in to provide that? and in doing so provide a vulnerability or a window into Trump in the United States that they can exert influence and control. That was a great story. And I haven't heard a word about it. And all this debt is, you know, at least what I remember reading, coming due now, coming due in the next one or two years. And so who's, to, to the attention span of the media, you know, who's following through on that? Because if it is not the media doing it, I don't see, you know, the state of New York is, uh, it looks like trying to build a tax fraud case. Well, where's the IRS? Where's the federal tax fraud case? You know, according to Trump, he's been audited, I guess, since 1943 or something. But, you know, if in fact there has been this kind of robust audit activity, and if it's sufficient for the state of New York to think they have criminal tax activity, well, why isn't there a federal tax case as well? And so I don't know. I, I, I the way the way we get movement on this is public attention. The way you get public attention is through media coverage. And I agree with you, the media just doesn't seem to have a lot of um sticktuitiveness with stories that become old. So
0: just in closing though, will we learn about who co-signed and guaranteed these Deutsche Bank loans? Because he was blackballed from Wall Street because of his multiple bankruptcies. And we know that he's delayed and delayed and delayed these releases of this material. But as far as I know, the material is in the hands of is, – is it in the hands of the Manhattan DA? Do we know at this point? Or will we know who co-signed those loans? Who guaranteed, because the suspicion's always been that it's been uh, Putin's oligarchs.
1: Right. I mean, that was some of the concern. And if, you know, who they might be are, are oligarchs elsewhere, people connected to foreign nation states – I I think there are a couple of places we might see it. One would be potentially in in the New York cases. Those are, you know, those are potentially more limited in scope. They're also, you know, there was litigation to get those documents into the hands of congressional oversight committees. And, you know, that went up to the Supreme Court and were ruled largely in Congress's favor. So I haven't heard because Congress seems to be, you know, Congress is, it's a political body. So they're going to try and maximize their political um, value and power and I think the Democrats see that by focusing the spotlight on the January 6th committee but to the extent the committees may have you know some sort of finance oversight sort of body may have Trump's tax or tax or financial records, I certainly haven't heard much about it. I mean there was a burst of you know trying to get that data but now it's all been January 6 and of course the reality is you know come, the November midterm elections and the new House and Senate in, you know, January, whenever the new term starts, the Democrats may very well lose the majority. If they lose the majority, those documents will never see the light of day. So, you know, if we're to see it out of Congress, I would expect to see it sometime this calendar year. But, you know, your guess is as good as mine when that, when and if that comes out.
0: Well, Peter Strzok, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Strzok, who's a former FBI Deputy Assistant Director for Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau. He has served as one of the original case agents for the Russian couple who inspired the TV series The Americans, and he's investigated a range of other high-profile cases from WikiLeaks to the 9-11 hijackings to Hillary Clinton's private email server, and he was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and worked with Robert Mueller as a leader of the FBI's efforts in creating the special counsel's office. He's also a veteran of the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division and was a recipient of the FBI's highest investigative honor, the Director's Award for Excellence, and he's the author of Compromised in Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, just out in a new paperback edition. We can take a brief station break and back looking into efforts to stop corporate price gouging during the pandemic when energy costs have increased by 20.3% and the cost to feed a family of four on a thrifty budget has increased by 33.5%. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amanda Starbuck, who's the Research Director at Food and Water Watch, where she has a new analysis on Eva congressional hearing data shows egregious profiteering in food energy sectors. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Starbuck.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, the Republicans are making a lot of out of uh, the rise of inflation, and it's been one of the excuses that uh, Senator Manchin has given for his obstructing of Biden's agenda. But it's clearly being driven by the food and, and energy sector. And today, of course, there's a hearing before the, the Senate, they're having testimony from the top Federal Trade Commission officials about the ongoing proliferation of scams and price gouging related to and enabled by the COVID-19 pandemic. So Mm -hmm. that's what's happening today. And tomorrow, the House Energy and Commerce Committee will be having hearings on corporate price gouging during the pandemic. So I actually got woken this morning by a call asking me about my extended Warranty on my car, which is a complete scam, one of many. And then the other day, I got a call from a woman with a Nigerian accent saying that she's calling from the California Department of Health to schedule my COVID vaccine. So, are we living in a criminal country here, or at least a country where crime is just rampant and there doesn't seem to be any pushback? It seems to be getting to the point where you just have to accept it. You know, even f- your phone now keeps talking about potential spam. Is this something we have to live with?
2: I mean, I can't I can't answer exactly to, like, the spam question, but I can answer that we are allowing and enabling um, a lot of corporate malfeasance to happen. And really under, you know, our existing antitrust legislation is not being utilized to really address the corporate power that is behind a lot of this price gouging that we are seeing at the moment.
0: Well, let's focus on your analysis then on the eve of this house hearing tomorrow, because uh, clearly the two drivers of inflation are rising food prices and energy prices. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the food prices, there's a very few number of these big companies that seem to have a stranglehold over the price of food, uh, making record profits. But the actual farmers who produce the cattle and poultry, etc., they're getting screwed as well, are they not?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we've done analysis on this. Um, You know, as corporate consolidation has really risen, and as, as you mentioned, as these top meatpacking companies have gained more and more in market power we have seen the retail price of of beef and of pork for instance and of chicken rise the farmers are not necessarily sharing in that in fact we just read some figures recently comparing um 1980 to about 2020 and pork farmers are making about a dollar per less per head of, of um, pork that they are selling yet we're actually paying more um at the supermarket. And what we call the price spread, that additional profit is really going to, to line the, prop, the pockets of these these large multinational corporations.
0: And your analysis shows that energy costs have increased 20.3% and the cost to feed a family of four on a thrifty food plan has increased by mm-hmm. 33.5%.
2: Exactly, yes. But we're not seeing, you know, rising in wages um, meeting up with that at all. Um, So among, for instance, in the U.S., among um, workers at grocery establishments, I mean, the price, the cost, um, excuse me, the wages they've earned has just slightly gone up, nowhere near the amount that they are going to have to spend, you know, to heat their homes and to purchase food. And in the oil and gas sector, um, the wages that have actually gone down. So while well, the oil and gas industry, major companies such as Chevron and Exxon Mobil, who have just released their quarter four revenues um, for this year, are doing even better than they were in the fourth quarter of 2019, they're you know bumping up executive pay, but workers are earning less, and we are paying significantly more. Like I said, to heat our homes and, and to put gas into our cars.
0: But in terms of the meat and poultry monopolies. JBS, which is owned by some Brazilian brothers, and Smithfield are owned by the Chinese. So these aren't even American companies, are they?
2: Yeah, many of them have, you know, like you mentioned, Smithfield used to be an American company, but has been purchased by w h Group, which is um, a Chinese multinational corporation. We have JBS, which is one of the largest beef packers in the world, um, operating within the U.S. as well. So, yeah, some of them are our multinational corporations, that's really, you know, where we've kind of headed to in, in many industries as well.
0: So, you've listed the the profits of some of these big food monopolies. The parent company, the Chinese parent company of Smithfield, their revenues are up 6.2% in 2020 over 2019. Purdue is up 12.7% over fiscal Mm -hmm. 2020. And Cargill's up 17.3%. So, I wonder, though, you know, Jimmy Carter was a one-term president, largely because of inflation, and inflation is certainly dogging Biden among other things, having cinema and, and mansion destroy his agenda as well. Mm-hmm. It's not looking good for him. Is it conspiratorial to suggest that whenever you get a, a reformer in the White House, suddenly, they get nailed with inflation, or is that just a coincidence?
2: Um, I can't really speak to that at all. I, I would really lay the blame on, you know, like we said, rising corporate power and really using this pandemic as sort of uh, a shield, as a curtain to to excuse just to run rampant, you know, even more over our rural communities and over our working um, Americans. And so I think that's really what's going on here. You know, we see, for instance, we know that there are some significant supply chain issues, um, especially for our livestock producers. um, In the early parts of the 2020 um, phase of the pandemic, you know, we saw slaughterhouses closing because of outbreaks. We saw difficulty in getting farmers, you know, to get their livestock to these plants. And pharma did really poorly in 2020, but these same companies, as you just mentioned, actually saw revenue and you know even paid their compensated their executives at a higher rates than they did um, the previous year. So that's this is really a question of corporate consolidation, and it really should be bipartisan. It really should be both sides of the aisle um, getting serious about tackling this.
0: So, what do you expect at tomorrow's hearing before the House Energy and Commerce Committee?
2: Yeah, it's hard to know what to expect (laughs) these days in Washington. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball and could answer that. But I I do expect, you know, data such as the stuff that we have put together to to be used and spoken of. I do see some, you know, kind of blame shifting. And, you know, I think there is there are people who are not willing to talk about that. And it might be the people who are, you know, are congressmen and congresswomen who have their pockets um, um, with these big companies as well, who are funded in part by them. And so. You know, we can't really address this issue if we also don't also address money and politics and dark money. Um, you know, let's look these these large meat packers, for instance, just to pick on them some more, have gained so much um, so much influence not only over the market but also over politics and can really do a lot in charge to you know beef up the candidates that will help them keep their bottom line. So it's I'm I'm hopeful that we'll have some good you know conversation, but there's also going to be I think some some blame shifting as well.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Amanda Starbuck, who's a research director at Food and Water Watch, where she has a new analysis on EVA Congressional Hearing. Data shows egregious profiteering in food energy sectors. So they won't be having a moment like when they uh, had all of the executives of the tobacco industry up there (laughs) denying that nicotine was addictive or the recent appearance of the oil company executives who Uh were asked about their long-term efforts to finance global warming denial which of course they denied so that's not happening right this will be more the democrats bringing statistics which you brought to the table mm-hmm. and the republicans mm-hmm. uh, what will they be saying <laughs>
2: <laughs> again that's that's hard to see i mean there has been there has been some hope. There has been some bipartisan move to look at, um, especially, you know, the impact that this is having on farmers. And that might possibly be that, you know, a lot of other Republicans have lots of farmers as, as constituents. Um, so I, I am hopeful that this, you know, there is. This turning to food next. We've seen that in the last couple of years towards big tech. Um, That has been a pretty bipartisan move towards um, tackling corporate concentration within the big tech industry. And I think food is next. And I am hopeful. I'm not, you know, I'm not expecting things to change just from one hearing. But I think having that conversation um, really is one of the first steps to really amending these problems.
0: Well, let's talk about food and how the grocery industry's revenues, the top Mm -hmm. four grocery retailers in the United States, which control about 70% of the market, they're Mm -hmm. doing incredibly well. Uh, Walmart, uh, their profits are up 6.7% over fiscal year 2019. Kroger, up 8.4% over fiscal year 2019. Costco, up 9.2% over 2019. Mm -hmm. And Albertsons, uh, up 11.6% over fiscal year 2019. So they're uh, doing well, even though they're complaining about the supply chains and all of this other Mm -hmm. stuff. So is this akin to what's also going on? There was a recent report by Oxfam that the 10 richest billionaires, nine of whom are Americans, have doubled their incomes during the pandemic to astronomical amounts of money.
2: I haven't seen that report, but that doesn't shock me. Um, yeah, I mean, so let's, let's pick on Walmart. Walmart's pretty easy to pick on. Um, they, you know, you mentioned the top four companies control 70% of the market. Walmart alone accounts for about a third of the market. So essentially, one out of every $3 spent um, at retail establishments on groceries goes into Walmart. Um, as you mentioned, they did well th- during the pandemic. Revenue increased about 6.7%. They hired um, a new executive that year who took in a combined total of $45 million in compensation that included a sign-on bonus. Let's say near 2020, Walmart's CEO took in almost 1,000 times what the median wages for a Walmart associate is. So Walmart associates, meanwhile, make about $22,000 a year. So if you have a family, if you have a family of four and you're working for $22,000 a year, you're actually below the poverty line. Um, One other really frightening stat we saw is just the rise in these grocery prices. So if you are feeding your family of four on what we call a thrifty food plan, this is um, defined by the USDA as being pretty thrifty, not buying anything fancy, cooking things from scratch. The cost of that plan went up about 33%. You would essentially be paying um, almost half of the money you get before you pay your taxes um, on your wages towards your food, right? So if you think about a person working at Walmart on you know, below poverty wages, trying to feed their family. Perhaps Walmart is the only store you have near you because Walmart has so um, been so successful out of, you know, edge notice competitors and being the only food retailer in many parts of the country. So they're also able to turn around and capture some of that money back into their own coffers. They have really perfected this way of squeezing out the supply chain and squeezing out wages from workers to fatten their bottom lines.
0: So just some of the statistics that you've provided here, which hopefully will influence tomorrow's hearings in the house energy and commerce committee on price gouging Um, gasoline is up 31.7 percent per gallon of unleaded Mm -hmm. beef is up 19.2 percent for ground beef and 25.5 percent for beef roast pork is up 31.7 percent for bacon and 18.6 percent for pork chops Poultry is up 19.7% for chicken breasts and 15.5% for broiler composite. And milk is up 17.4% and eggs are up 16.5%. So those are the staples, are they not?
2: Exactly. Yes. Yes. We're not talking about, you know, lobster and red wine. We're talking about things that people need to feed their families.
0: And this is something that President Biden has actually talked about. He's talked about the meatpacking monopolies and the oil companies and obviously even in his speech some time back when he brought up these issues he didn't name the Saudi crown prince but was suggesting that he was also a player who uh, was trying to force Biden into negotiating directly with him and since Biden has kind of boycotted him because of his uh, Mohammed bin Salman's role in the grisly murder of the Washington Post reporter. So Biden's, he's basically put this on the table, has he not? But Amanda, my understanding is that Biden, even though he's been stymied by his own senators, Manchin and Cinema, in terms of his bigger mm-hmm. agenda, he does have at his hands uh, executive orders or the power mm-hmm. of executive orders. So how much could he do to address this problem through executive orders?
2: That's a wonderful question, and actually Food and Water Watch, my organization, called for um, Biden to do just that at the beginning of his presidency last year to call for um, a moratorium on mega-mergers in the agribusiness industry, um, basically muddled off of legislation that has been introduced um, into Congress in the past that would put a halt to, we're not talking about small mergers, we're talking about the largest of the large mergers. There have been significant mergers that have happened even the last five to ten years, um, many even under the Obama administration, you know, huge companies like Kraft Heinz, um, Bayer, Monsanto that have merged together and even, you know, solidified their their power over our food system even more. So one thing that he could do today is, is an executive order to basically stop, you know, mergers above a certain amount and even look back and to see, you know, what can we learned um, from these mergers in the past? How bad is the problem? And can we, you know, force some of these companies to break up? You know, we've done that in the past. We did that 100 years ago with, with Standard Oil and, and other companies. And so we can do that again. And, you know, like I said, Biden does have that that power with the executive action to take, to take action today.
0: So in terms of tomorrow's hearing before the House Energy and Commerce Committee, what are they planning on doing? I mean, they've suggested that they might... I mean, I know the Federal Trade Commission officials are appearing today before the Senate on on the scamming that's going on, which we started talking about at the beginning. And the Federal Trade Commission had a report last week that more than 95,000 People in the United States reported roughly $770 million in losses last year because of fraud that originated on social media largely, uh, and social media has become a kind of goldmine for scammers. And as I mentioned, you know, I got woken this morning by a scammer on my phone, and that's, mm-hmm. that's endemic. But in terms of tomorrow's hearing before the House, what kind of powers can they invoke here? because apparently that's going to be central to the hearing and they're examining a bill the Democrats have pushed to prohibit their price gouging. This legislation was first reported in 2020 and it would prohibit individuals from selling goods or services during a pandemic at unconscionably excessive prices. So what authority are we talking about here? Who's going to be the cop on the beat? <laughs>
2: No, that's a good question. I mean, it, it seems to be more of like an informational sort of hearing, you know, really kind of drumming up support and um, necessity for this bill that you just mentioned. So they'll be bringing out some witnesses from um, consumer advocate organizations, for instance, Public Citizen as one of those speakers. Um, and really kind of, like I said, drumming up support, pointing to this problem and, and really kind of highlighting how a bill such as the one you mentioned will really help to address some of these issues.
0: Well, I thank you so much for joining us here today, Amanda. I appreciate it.
2: Yes, it was my pleasure.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Amanda Starbuck, the Research Director at Food and Water Watch, where she has a new analysis on eve of Congressional Hearing data shows egregious profiteering in food energy sectors. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the fundraising haul Senator Sinema is being lavished with from oil company executives as she capitalizes on her success having delivered on taxes and climate change for her big donors. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sheila Crumholtz, the Executive Director of Open Secrets, a nonpartisan organization that tracks money, politics and influence in Washington. She previously spent eight years as Open Secrets Research Director, supervising data analysis for OpenSecrets.org and Open Secrets clients. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sheila Crumholtz. Thank
3: you. Glad to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, you're quoted in an article in The Guardian, uh, Sheila, about Kirsten Sinema's, how she'd been courting Republican fossil fuel donors following her filibuster stance, uh, and basically, along with Senator Manchin, killing Biden's Build Back Better agenda. I'm trying to get the actual figures here, but I understand that since she basically killed off Build Back Better, I think she's hauled in what... A, a million and a half dollars—is that right?
3: Uh, she has been a phenomenal fundraiser and brought in, I think, just um, in this most recent uh, period, a uh, hundred thousand during her filibuster speech week. Her uh, finances were from fossil fuel donors were kind of paltry compared to uh, other sectors, but. She, The fact that she is not running for election and raising so much money really stands out and is, I think, uh, a hallmark of her kind of power play in Congress.
0: Well, but you can't help noticing it's kind of a payback, isn't it, for killing the Biden Build Back Better agenda in terms of clean energy? It's the fossil fuel companies that are rewarding her, uh, and they clearly were opposed to... The clean energy efforts in Build Back better. Absolutely.
3: And this yes. This will be. I, I expect that we will see um, the numbers rise for the oil industry uh, based on recent fundraising. Once we have uh, analyzed this most recent month of fundraising, we're just now today uh, looking at the year-end filings, which were filed yesterday on the thirty-first. So there's always a, we're always a bit hamstrung by the filing deadlines. Um, but we will, uh, you know, be certainly uh, seeing an uptick in overall funds, and it'll be interesting to see how the money is shifting to different industries.
0: Well, apparently, she uh, had a fundraiser down in Texas hosted by the oil executives, the chiefs of Continental Resources Chairman Harold Hamm and ConocoPhillips uh, Chief Executive uh, Ryan Lance at the River Oaks Country Club in Houston and she spoke for half an hour and formed this Republican crowd that they should be could be rest assured that she would not back any changes to filibuster rule and essentially I mean this is the part of it that I find extraordinary is not only is she killing efforts to have alternative energy going forward and create a green economy and, and electrify the grid and basically do what's not even what's necessary, but at least a step in the direction of addressing the threat of climate change. She also basically is killing the Democrats' chances of getting reelected, isn't he, by thwarting any voting rights bills?
3: Yes, she is uh, really feeling her oats. She is, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) recognizes the pivotal role she has chosen to play and how valuable it is to her re-election efforts, uh, her fundraising efforts, and her wish to play a kind of maverick role, which perhaps in her mind is akin to John McCain, who was famously known as a maverick in, in the Senate. So it is, I think, paying off for her to to kind of uh, cut this figure among the oil industry and a number of other industries, corporate executives who would not favor the Build Back Better, climate provisions and regulatory and tax provisions. There are a number of um, benefits uh, to her in terms of her building her persona, as well as uh, to the industries that will benefit from her positions.
0: But I don't see how anybody could buy the idea that she's a maverick when, in fact, she's just – basically doing the bidding of big oil, and also she also got donations from the owner of Home Depot and his wife. And in giving her money, they basically said, we're rewarding her for her stance. So it's pretty clear, isn't it? There's a quid pro quo there.
3: Yes. uh, Well, (laughs) uh, there is no surprise that the titans of industry are directing their donations maybe across the aisle for them to someone who is going to um, uh, stand up for their legislative agenda and will thwart that of their opponents, in this case the Democrats. And as in, in terms of her being a maverick, of course one woman's maverick, maverick is uh, another person's obstructionist and it's all uh, how you look at it. Um, but there's no doubt that she has played both a pivotal role and an obstructionist role in terms of voting rights, uh, in terms of Build Back Better. And uh, and I'm sure we haven't seen uh, the last of her on these issues.
0: Well, she apparently had back in September, at the end of September, she had her campaign coffers that she had in the bank were 4.4 million. So now it's got to be considerably higher. She's not running for re-election until 2024, and already in Arizona, there's a a group called the Primary Cinema Project. Uh, they've raised uh, 330 thousand dollars, including 100 thousand during the week of her filibuster speech. So there's a lot of money being <laughs> raised on b- on both sides, I guess. And in the broader sense, we're now learning that Republican super PACs have outraised Democratic rivals ahead of the midterm congressional elections. So this is going to be, I mean, this is, this is the work that you do, Sheila, looking at and investigating money in politics. Do you expect that this midterm election coming up in November will be the most expensive in, in history? It seems to be shaping up that way.
3: Uh, I, you know, we we generally are really almost expecting at this point that each cycle will be more expensive than the last. Of course, this has been turbocharged by the Citizens United decision and the super creation of super PACs, the McCutcheon decision, just a kind of the dominoes uh, have been falling for years now. And and what that has Translated into is just bigger and bigger donations coming from fewer and fewer hands. At the same time, of course, small donations have been uh, for, for many uh, a positive uh, area of growth. We've seen more uh, donations coming from, on the left, donors giving small amounts through Act Blue, and on the right, Win Red. Of course, on the right, that has been to, in no small part due to. Trump, Donald Trump's fundraising machine, which continues chugging along or rather speeding along, and um, some of the kind of fundraising tactics that he's employed. so there there is the the notion that uh, a candidate now really can uh, tap into uh, their constituents favor there and and kind of tap into social media, the zeitgeist and and capitalize on that by raising massive Numbers of donations. That's always uh, kind of a double-edged sword, though, because if they're raising those small donations from coast to coast, they're not—they don't represent votes, and that's what they need ultimately on election day. So, uh, the money is huge. Uh, I do expect that it will break records for a midterm election because the intensity has continued from 2020, and of course, uh, here again, uh, the presidential politics plays no small n- no small part of that. But super PACs and dark money organizations that can raise tens of millions, hundreds of millions, $100 million a hundred million dollars at the drop of a hat and change the calculus in a race, you know, is is plays a huge role in the overall sums that we're now seeing.
0: Well, Senator Sinema, of course, was famous for the kind of dismissive curtsy she made when she did a thumbs down on voting against American working families and working people who desperately need a pay raise to, for the $15 an hour a pay raise. And she also skipped the Senate vote to create a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters. But in a way, what she's done with pushing through the bipartisan infrastructure bill at the expense of Build Back Better is a betrayal not just of Biden and the democratic agenda, but it's it's a betrayal of women, isn't it? Because Build Back Better compensates for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is all about taking care of jobs for men in heavy industry to building bridges and roads and cement and steel and all of that heavy labor. Whereas Build Back Better is about childcare and family leave and and stuff that you could... Kind of suggest our jobs for women. So, can you make that case?
3: I, I honestly, I don't. Uh, I'm not studied on on those issues. I do think that her, you know, uh, her courtship of corporate America is pretty well documented, and that's where her fundraising has been focused. I, I'm less familiar with her, you know, her position on kind of issues of wounds, issues and 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 you know, the child tax credit, ultimately, you know, she may be able to raise the funds from corporate America that is hoping that she will stand in the way of regulation and and taxation and, and uh, new climate change provisions, et cetera. But again, you know, the, the for better and for worse, when it comes down to it, the case has to be made to the people of Arizona uh, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, how they view her. Certainly, again, it, it is, um, I think, attractive very often to American voters to have a candidate that is willing to um, thumb their nose at the party, to not to you know, break with their party, party line. But in this case, yes, there are, are many sizable and serious bills that go not just to um, the economic revitalization, uh, especially in the midst of and post-COVID, uh, but also to um, some of our nation's founding ideals. And so, you know, it remains to be seen uh, how, how those Arizona voters will uh, react, but uh, certainly we've seen we've seen uh, the message from corporate america and uh it's two thumbs up for senator cinema
0: well just in closing uh, her partner in destroying the democratic agenda and and basically putting a <laughs> a knife in uh, biden's back is joe manchin and today joe manchin basically pronounced bill back dead so I know there are efforts to revive it in hopes that you can get some money for alternative energy and the other things. That even stripping out the child tax credit, but it doesn't sound like Mansion's interested.
3: Yes, uh, it is um, uh, going to be a challenging, a challenging time for proponents of, of Build Back Better, and these are going to be issues that. Are neither the first nor the last to challenge the Democratic Party in the lead-up to the 22 midterms. So she's uh, Cinema and Mansion both have sizable funds to draw on, and there seems to be no slowing down on the fundraising front. Cinema will be a big target. Both Cinema and Mansion will be a big target of progressive super PACs and and dark money organizations. Um, but clearly they are um, attracting uh, support from across the aisle because they are, again, playing such key roles in thwarting uh, the uh, the Democrats uh, and their legislative agenda.
0: Well, Sheila Krumholz, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Sheila Krumholz, who's the Executive Director of Open Secrets, a nonpartisan organization that tracks money And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.